Thanks for downloading today's podcast of Clearly Seen, taught by Mike Kokoris. I think you're going to enjoy what Mike has for you today. And if you're ever in the San Fernando Valley area of Los Angeles, we invite you to Lindley Church. Mike would love to meet you personally and answer any questions you have. Feel free to email your comments and questions to michael at kokoris.com. Now, let's hear from Mike. They dated for several years. During that time, he told her that he loved her and that he wanted to marry her. She loved him, and needless to say, she wanted to be married very badly. It was sort of understood between the two of them that um, they would get married someday. As a matter of fact, he even gave her a promise ring but he never got around to proposing. Then one night, he took her to dinner. There was nothing unusual about that. They'd gone to dinner before. After dinner, they went for a walk on the beach, and that wasn't different or unusual either. They had strolled in the sand along the beach before. In fact, it was one of their favorite things to do. On this occasion, he paused, The sky was clear, the stars were bright, the moon was full. He looked at her face, pulling his right hand out of his pocket. He slipped a ring on her finger and said, Will you marry me? She was beginning to wonder if he was ever going to ask. And now, finally, he did. What? was she supposed to do? Should she immediately say yes? Or should she say, uh, let me think about it for a week. What should she do? Like a young man promising a young lady that he will propose years before he actually does, God does something similar. He makes promises way before he ever performs them. And when he finally does, what should be our response? Well, that's what I want us to think about tonight, because that was the experience of no less than Abraham. God made him a promise, and it took God forever to get around to fulfilling that promise. So I'm interested in looking at God's promise and Abraham's response to it. As a matter of fact, there's even more to the story than those two things. So will you turn with me to Genesis chapter 21, and let's look at Abraham finally getting a son by Sarah. We're not going to look at the whole chapter tonight. There's actually two different, entirely different episodes in this one chapter But we are going to look down through verse 21, which talks about Abraham and his two different sons. I'm going to begin by just looking at the first son, and then after we do that, I'll look at the second son. So this is divided into two parts. Look at verse 1. And the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had spoken. For Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, 
at the set time which God had spoken to him. And Abraham called the name of his son that was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. Then Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Now Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made me laugh. All who hear will laugh with me. She also said, who would have said to Abraham and Sarah, uh, and she also said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? For I have borne him a son in his old age. So the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. All right. Uh, and this is the uh, first part of the passage I want us to talk about. There's more. We'll get to it in a second. But what I want you to notice is that this passage is telling us that God finally fulfilled his promise to Abraham. Go back and look at verse 1. It says, The Lord visited Sarah as he had said. All right, he promised. But that was a long time ago. He first said this back in Genesis chapter 17. And it says, Sarah bore him, verse 2, uh, a son in his old age. Well, as a matter of fact, God had said that too in Genesis chapter 17. And it says, verse 2, at the set time which God had spoken to him. God had designated the time uh, in Genesis chapter 18. So there are several things in these verses that if you're aware of the story of Abraham prior to this, you see that these are all promises God made and the author is making an issue out of the fact that he fulfilled these promises exactly like he promised. So it says in verse 1, the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and for Sarah uh, as he had spoken. Verse uh, 2, which God had spoken to him. So he's making a big issue out of this is what God said, and he did it exactly like he said he would do. And that's the emphasis of those opening verses. There's another little... Um, thing or two we might notice, and one of them is that it says um, that he visited Sarah. The Lord visited Sarah. It's an interesting way to say it. Uh, what becomes significant is that uh, God said that on other occasions, like uh, when he intervened to save Israel from the Egyptians, in uh, Genesis chapter 50, and again in Exodus chapter 4, it is said that he visited them. Or in Ruth chapter 1, God visited them when he ended a famine. And there are other occasions where he uses the word visited so that um, the use of that word here indicates that this is, it highlights the fact that this is an event of major significance. God visited Sarah and did something supernatural. That's the point. And in this case, 
apparently what he did was rejuvenate her body because, as we have seen in chapter 18, she was well past childbearing age, and yet she bore a son. And later in the passage, we're going to tell, she, it's going to tell us she not only bore a son in her old age, she nursed him. So this has got to be some supernatural phenomena on the Lord's part. And Abraham's an old man. Matter of fact, a few verses later, he's going to tell us he was 100 years old when this happened. And after this, by other women, he ended up having six more children. So uh, he was quite productive in his old age. Now, this passage is saying God fulfilled his promises just exactly like he said he would do. But he waited. He made the promise and like that story I told at the beginning, he just waited a good long time before he did anything. As a matter of fact, he first told Abraham that he was going to be a father by Sarah when Abraham was 75 years old. And he didn't get the son until he was 100 years old. So God made a promise and waited 25 years to fulfill the promise. God waited, and he waited, and he waited. But when he performed, this passage highlights the fact that he did exactly what he said he would do. So just put that down. It's a principle. God may wait to fulfill his promise. But when he fulfills them, he will do exactly what he said he would do. To take a simple illustration, he said the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem in Micah chapter 5. The Messiah was born in Bethlehem, according to Matthew chapter 2. He said in Isaiah 53 that he would heal the sick. And of course we know from Matthew 8, where that verse is quoted, that he did exactly that. He said his son would die for sin in Isaiah 53. And of course, we know that that's exactly what he did according to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. As a matter of fact, in Daniel chapter 9, he even gave the time frame when the Messiah would appear. And that time frame was fulfilled exactly as God said it would be. So the story begins with God being faithful to fulfill his promise exactly like he said he would fulfill it. Now the question is, how did they respond to that? Well, drop down to verse 3. And Abraham called the name of his son, which was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. Now Abraham is obeying the Lord because back in chapter 17, God told him to name the son Isaac. Then it says in verse 4, And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Again, earlier we were told in Genesis chapter 17 that he was to be circumcised on the eighth day. Now, when the Lord first told Abraham this, he laughed. 
I don't think he was laughing at the Lord. Uh, it wasn't a laugh of unbelief. We looked at that back when we were talking about that passage. But he laughed. And so God says, call him Isaac. You know what the word Isaac means? Laugh. So he laughed, and he named his son Isaac. He laughed. So I think we could conclude from this. When the Lord does get around to fulfilling a promise, what, would, what, would should, what should we do? Maybe that should encourage us to obey the Lord. I think that uh, the whole story of Abraham uh, is illustrating that his faith is growing. Uh, there were times when he faltered. There were times when he fell in terms of not trusting the Lord. But he's getting stronger and stronger in his faith. And this time, he, the Lord did exactly what he told him he was going to do, and Abraham did exactly what the Lord told him to do in response. So our response should be obedience. We should obey. What should that girl's response have been on the beach? Should she have put him off? If she wanted to marry him, there's no sense putting him off. She should immediately say, yes. And that's what we should do. We should immediately say, yes. Look at Sarah's response. Pick it up at verse 6. And by the way, verse 5 says, and Abraham was 100 years old when his son was born, as if to emphasize, see, God did it even when he was 100. But anyway, uh, and Sarah, verse 6, said, God has made me laugh, and all who hear will laugh with me. And she also said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? For I have borne to him a son in his old age. So, uh, these verses are telling us that Sarah had a response. And she had the response of laughter. Now, Earlier, we saw that Sarah laughed, and it was the laugh of unbelief. Yeah, right. Kind of an attitude. This is more the laughter of joy. Uh, God made me laugh. That she was just full of joy because God had fulfilled his promise to her. So, I think Abraham's response was immediate obedience to do what God told him to do, and their both's response was joy, praise. God made me laugh. Praise ye the Lord. So I think this is illustrating what we should do. God fulfills his promises eventually, and when he does, it ought to encourage us to be more obedient and encourage us to praise. God promised he would send a Messiah and in Luke chapter 2, he was born. And when the shepherds in the field saw it, what did they do? They praised the Lord. So when God does fulfill the promise, the proper response is simple praise. Now, I said that what I wanted to talk about tonight was Abraham's sons, and that this passage talks about two different sons. We've looked at the first son, Isaac. But if you will recall, he's already had a son. Remember, it was Sarah's bright idea, thinking God couldn't possibly give her a son. She suggested that Abraham uh, spend the night with her handmaid, Hagar, 
And as a result of that, Hagar had a son named Ishmael. So now Isaac is the second son. What about the first son? Well, that picks the story up at verse 8. The child, Isaac, grew, and she breastfed him. And when that ended, look at verse 8. Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was waned. So they threw a feast. I, I found this rather interesting. I read that the custom at this time was to breastfeed the baby two to three years. Does that strike you ladies as odd? Uh, call my wife the theologian, and I said, is this, do they do this today? That just strikes me as very odd. And she said, no, 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 no. If you did that, they would think that was strange. No, they don't do it that long. Well, they did then. That was the custom. And so Isaac is two or three years old at this point. And when they finally stopped it, the other custom is they threw a feast. I don't know why you would throw a feast for that. Maybe the mother would. Um, but they threw a feast. So that's what they did. And that forms the backdrop to what happens next. Verse 9. And Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had born to Abraham, scoffing. Ooh. From what we know about this whole story, uh, he was probably 16 or 17 years old. He's a teenager. And he sees this new baby, and they're throwing a feast for him, and guess what sets in? Jealousy. So he scoffs. He the word means actually ridicules. And in Galatians chapter 4, Paul quotes this story and says what he did was persecute Isaac, which is probably an application of the fact that he ridiculed him. The whole idea is that Ishmael, this son of the Egyptian Hagar, was looking at Isaac with disdain. And he was ridiculing and mocking and scoffing him. So here's what you have. You have Abraham and Sarah laughing because he was born. And you have Ishmael who's not laughing because he was born. He's laughing at him, not with the situation. So now there is a huge problem between the wife, the mother of Isaac, and the wife, and the mother, Hagar, of the Egyptians. So, it's real interesting. Because, you see, this is not just a matter of jealousy, but it's a matter of who's going to get the inheritance. Now, can you imagine a mother who has a son, after all these years, and she wants her son 
to get the inheritance. You know how mothers are about their own kids. And there is a, another person who might get the inheritance. Can you imagine how she feels? Livid. She's not going to tolerate that for a second. So look at verse 10. So she said to Abraham, throw her out. That's what it says. Cast her out. Cast out this bondwoman and her son. For the son of this one woman shall not be the heir with my son, namely with Isaac. So the whole issue is not just jealousy, though I think that's here. It's much more serious than that. I want my son to have the inheritance, and I don't want this other. It was your idea. And she had been your maid for 20 years. And yet you come to the conclusion, throw her out of here. And I think the issues are jealousy, and I think the other issue clearly it's stated here is heirship. I don't want any competition. He is going to be the heir. That's settled. Kick her out. Now that grieved Abraham. Uh, matter of fact, verse 11 says, And the matter was very displeasing to Abraham's sight because of his son. Uh, Abraham, no doubt, loved his son. Matter of fact, if you will recall, earlier in the book of Genesis, Abraham even asked the Lord if Ishmael could be his heir. Remember that? So he loved his son, Ishmael. He didn't want to throw him out. So he goes to the Lord. But God said to Abraham, Do not let it be displeasing in your sight because of the lad or because of your bondwoman. Whatever Sarah has said to you, listen to her voice, for in Isaac your seed shall be called. Wow. God agreed with Sarah. Said, do what she said. Kick him out. Now what God is interested in is this airship business. God made a promise Matter of fact, God made a covenant with Abraham, a one-way covenant. I'm going to give you the land, and I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to make you a great nation. The whole world's going to be blessed through you, and you are going to pass that on to your descendants through your wife, Sarah. And he's made that very clear. So she finally gets a son, and now there is this whole issue of, well, who's going to be the heir? And God says, look, I told you. I mean, that, that Ishmael guy wasn't my idea. That was your wife's idea. Reminds you of Eve. Uh, but I told you it's going to be Isaac. So do what Sarah says. Throw him out. Now, I don't think this is to punish Hagar or Ishmael. I don't think that's quite what's going on. As a matter of fact, I think, if anything, it might be for their protection from Sarah. But what's really going on is God is going to provide for them. Verse 14, so Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and put it on her shoulder and gave it, it uh, and the boy to Hagar and sent her away. Again, 
you've got to be uh, impressed with the fact that Abraham immediately obeyed. So, let me make a little suggestion. I suggested a few minutes ago that the fact that God had fulfilled this promise should have encouraged Abraham to obey and should have strengthened his faith. Right? Well, this may be the result of that. So as much as he did not want to do this, it was exceedingly displeasing to him. God said do it, so what did he do? I think he is getting stronger and stronger in his faith, and he said, all right, that's what God said do. That's what we will do. Wow, what a turn of events. Kick her out, throw her out. Gave her enough food to get down the road, maybe to the next city or something. That's all he gave her. Is God being pretty harsh? Well, read the rest of the story. In the middle of verse 14, it says, Then she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. Now, uh, this is in the southern part of Palestine, and it's called the wilderness. It is desert, folks. I've been there, it is desert. The likes of which you can't imagine. And apparently this suggests that she got lost. They're wandering in the wilderness. Look at verse 15. And the water in the skin was used up. She got lost and she ran out of water. And she placed the boy under one of the scrubs. A tree is what this really amounts to. She put him in the shade because they've run out of water. Then it says in verse 16, she sat down across from him at a distance of about a bow shot. That is the distance of what it would take an archer to shoot an arrow. And she said to herself, let me not see the death of the boy. So she sat opposite him and lifted up her voice and wept. They get lost, they run out of water, they're in the desert, that's not good, and she is, well, she's in despair, she's despondent, she weeps. And so God steps in, and God heard the voice of the lad, apparently he prayed, then the angel of God, now we've mentioned the angel of the... Lord, this is the angel of God. That's very, very important. I'm going to come back to that in a minute. The angel of God, not the angel of the Lord, made me... Uh, I'm, uh, okay, I'm sorry, I'm back. I, got, I started reading in the wrong place. Verse 17. And the angel of God called to Hagar out of heaven and said to her, What ails you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of your son, where he is. So the angel of God, I think this is a reference to the angel of the Lord, but I also think it's significant that he's called the angel of God, not just the angel of the Lord. Now, you might have heard me say, I'm sure you have, you might already know, that when it says angel of the Lord, and it's capital O, capital, o, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, 
It's God's personal name. We translate it Jehovah or Yahweh. Uh, so that's the personal name. When it's translated God, that's another Hebrew word. That means uh, Elohim, means God. And it's looking at God as creator. The word Lord is looking at God as one who makes a covenant. So this messenger from the Lord that I think is probably the pre-incarnate Christ is designated not as the angel of the Lord who's come to keep a covenant. That's Isaac. It's the angel of God who nonetheless did promise that he would take care of Ishmael. Now, he doesn't have to do that because he made a covenant. With Abraham, he made a covenant that Isaac was going to be his heir. But now, he's uh, made a promise that he's going to take care of Ishmael, and that he does. He says, Arise, verse 18, lift up the lad and hold him with your hand, for I will make him a great nation. Whoa. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to protect you. Matter of fact, I think that's part of what was involved in getting sent away. And I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make him a great nation. Would you care to guess um, where that comes from? What's the great nation that came out of Ishmael? Maybe I should say nations. The Arabs. So Abraham had two sons, and out of one came the Jews, and out of the other came the Arabs. And this is just the beginning of the conflict that has lasted for multiple centuries. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin of water and gave the lad a drink. So the Lord was with the lad, and he grew and dwelt in the wilderness and became an archer. And he dwelt in the wilderness of Parham. And his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. Remember, she was an Egyptian, and so she goes and gets him an Egyptian wife. And he ends up having 12 sons. Now, Isaac had a son named Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons, and that produced the Jews. And Ishmael has 12 sons, and that produced the Arabs. So, God fulfilled his promise, not his covenant, to uh, Ishmael, and he became a great nation. All right. These verses are simply telling us that Abraham had two sons, Isaac and Ishmael. He made a covenant to cover Isaac. He made a promise to cover Ishmael, and he took care of both of them, and both of them produced great nations, which is exactly what God said from the very beginning. So I want to sum this up, and I want to make some very interesting points. I think the point of this passage is that when God fulfilled his promise exactly as he said he would do it, that Abraham obeyed and Sarah rejoiced and the others in the story obeyed and got blessed as well. So this story hinges on God fulfilling his covenant. 
and promise and our response to it. Now, I want to discuss a couple of things because this passage is referred to on four different occasions in the New Testament. In Romans chapter 9 and in Hebrews chapter 11, this story is referred to, and the point is that it's not the physical descendants of Abraham that will inherit the covenant of Abraham, but it's those who, like Abraham, have faith. So Isaac was the, was the child of promise. God promised, I'm going to give you a son, and he had a son. And so Paul and the writer to the Hebrews uses this as an illustration of the fact that it's just being a physical descendant of Abraham isn't it. What's important is to fulfill the covenant is that you have faith. Now that's interesting. But what's really interesting is Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4 quotes this passage of Scripture. And when Paul quotes it, he makes it an illustration. It's, it's a principle of interpretation called allegorizing it. Instead of making the people in it represent people, which they do, he makes them represent something else. Like there's a story in Luke 5 where the, the apostles took out a boat, throw, threw a net overboard, caught a, boat, a net full of fish, and dumped them back in the boat. So what's the point of the story? Uh, the Lord told Peter, uh, throw the net out, and Peter says, we, we, we fished all night and taken nothing. I, this isn't going to work, and, and he did it anyway. He didn't, wasn't persuaded it was going to work, but he did it. Threw the net overboard, and when they caught not just a net full, but a boat full of fish, Peter fell down and said, uh, he, well, he said at one point, at thy word I will, I obeyed. And then he said, I'm a sinful man, O Lord, depart from me. So what's the point of that story? There was a real man named Peter. There was a real fishing boat. There was a real fishing net. The Lord told them to go fishing. And when they obeyed, the Lord gave them a boatload of fish. That's the point of the story. At thy word I will. I heard a preacher once use that story, and he allegorized it. He made everything in that story mean something but what it really meant. So he said, the boat is the church, and the net is the gospel. So when the church throws the gospel into the water, which is the world, they catch fish, which are sinners, and they put them back in the church. Now that, <laughs> that isn't even close. <laughs> So what that story is about. That's called the allegorization of Scripture. You allegorize it. You make it mean something it doesn't mean. And part of allegorization is you either ignore or deny the historical facts. You don't make anything out of the fact that was an actual boat and an actual fisherman, an actual catch of fish. You bypass all that and get to this, you, you attribute symbolic meanings to all of that. Well, that's not the way to interpret Scripture, right? You're supposed to say right. But that's what Paul does with this passage. 
It's the only place in the Bible where that happens. He makes Sarah represent the work of the Holy Spirit and Hagar the work of the flesh as we have the Holy Spirit and we have the flesh. And he lands on that little phrase, cast her out. And she represents the law and the flesh. And Paul is saying, throw him out. Just like Sarah said, throw out uh, Hagar and the son, throw out the law, throw out the flesh. Go by the promise. Wow. Uh, does that mean that we can allegorize the scripture? Is that a legitimate means of interpretation? Or should we take this story at face value? Sarah is a real woman. Hagar is a real woman. Isaac and Ishmael are real sons. And the story actually happened. Now, which is it? Do they represent something else, or are they real people? And what gave Paul the right to do this? I remember when I was first introduced to this subject in the seminary, I thought, whoa, <laughs> if Paul could do it... <laughs> And I know some rather famous preachers that have done that with some rather interesting passages of Scripture. I know a pastor once who allegorized the whole book of Esther. And everybody went, ah, wow, woo! And I went, are you nuts? And what gave Paul right to do this? I remember uh, my professor saying, the Greek text in Galatians 4 says, and that story being allegorized. And he made a big issue out of the fact Paul is saying, it's not an allegory. I'm going to make it an allegory. And he probably did that because he was refuting the Judaizers, and they may have done some of that kind of stuff with the Scripture, and he's using their method against them. But this is not, the allegorization is not the proper way to interpret the Scripture. Take it at face value. But since Paul quoted this, I thought it was worth at least mentioning. You said, wow, i never heard anything like that in my life. No, what you heard was the fruit of it when some preacher messed up a passage of Scripture. That's what you heard. All right, let's go back to the point then. If this is a real story of real people, then what's the point? And there are two. God fulfills his promise. He may delay it, but he fulfills it. Now, what do you mean? Well, let's talk about that. Uh, he made a promise that anyone who believes in Jesus Christ will be given the gift of eternal life. Is he as good as his promise? Amen. Absolutely. God is as good as his promise. All right, he promises to answer prayer under certain conditions, that if we ask according to his will, if we're trusting him according to his will, He'll answer the prayer. Is God as good as his promise? Now that's where the delay might come in. Uh, the delay might be that you might have prayed for something for years and years and years and not gotten it. Keep praying. And I think that's part of the purpose of this passage. God may delay but when he gets around to answering, he will do exactly what he said. Or let me give you a third illustration. One that probably is the hardest of the three. 
He said he would save anybody who believed. He said he would answer prayer. What about the fact that all things work together for good? That's the tough one. Do you really mean all things work together for good to those that love God, to those that are called according to his purpose? Every one of us either have had or will have situations in our lives we don't understand. Why did God allow that to happen? I don't know. But I know he said all things would work together. He didn't say all things were good. He said all things would work together for good. And the point I wish to make tonight is you may not see that immediately. It may take 25 years. Oh, great. Right. And that's our problem, isn't it? We're in a hurry. We don't have the patience. 25 years is too long. But you see, that's what God's doing. Is he developing endurance in us to see if we'll trust him? Because if he gave us everything we wanted, immediately, what would happen? He'd spoil us and we'd remain babes. We would remain immature. So this is super important. God fulfills his promise. And when you bump into one of these promises and he doesn't respond, what you tend to do is think he's not, he didn't, he's not going to fulfill this promise. And that's the point. He'll do it. It just may take a long time. 25 years. And you've got to trust him. So what do you do when he fulfills the promise? You throw a party. You rejoice. It should be an encouragement to further obedience, but they all rejoiced that God had fulfilled his promise. So when people get saved, what do they do? Well, according to Jesus in Luke 15, the angels in heaven threw the party. There was joy because God fulfilled his promise. And what about answers to prayer? Should we rejoice then? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, And how about when uh, we've gone through a severe trial and God finally comes through? I probably don't even have to tell you that. You would do what? Rejoice. Throw a party. Have fun. God answers prayer. Let me read you a psalm. When the Lord brought back the captivity of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouths were filled with laughter and our tongue with singing. Then we said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us and we are glad. That's it. When you do see the Lord work, What is appropriate is joy and praise and an encouragement to be more obedient. So, you've been praying and hadn't gotten an answer. You've been going through a trial and it hasn't looked like it's produced any good. Hang on. God will fulfill his covenant and his promises 
to the letter, exactly like he said he was going to do it. And when he does, it ought to encourage us to be more obedient, to be more faithful, to be, have more faith. In the meantime, to throw a party. Amen and amen. In Charles Dickens' famous novel, A Christmas Carol, Scrooge finally realized that what Christmas was about. At that point in the novel, Scrooge says, quote, I don't know what to do. I'm as light as a feather. I am as happy as an angel. I am as merry as a schoolboy. I'm as giddy as a drunken man. End of quote. Dickens writes, Really? For a man who had been out of practice for so many years, it was a splendid laugh, a most illustrative laugh, the father of a long line of laughs. End of quote. When God fulfills his promise, we should shout for joy and be more determined than ever to trusting and obeying. Father, thank you for this encouraging word that you do fulfill your promise, even when it seems to us like you don't, that you may delay, but you're faithful and just to do all that you said you would do. So, Father, may the Spirit of God be pleased to encourage us to trust you, regardless of the circumstances. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.